and welcome once again to Father Spitzer's University, the busy intersection of faith and reason, where we are always praying for your support on this program. I'm Doug Keck, of course, joined momentarily by our main figure, Father Spitzer in his own universe. And if you want to contact <laughs> him and talk to him, you can do that through email. And those are great questions you send us at spitzersuniverse at EWTN.com. Check out the myriad places Father Spitzer uh, is on the web. He's at themagiscenter.com, crediblecatholic.com, purposefuluniverse.com. He is trilocating there, but you can find him in all those places. And Father Spitzer's universe is always available and is on demand and in demand for EWTN uh, viewers, of course, and our YouTube channels there as well. And you know, there's so much programming that we never get to tell people, but we've got wonderful children's programming free on our on-demand channel as well, including very popular Tomkin, uh, the Roman Catholic, the Friar, which people love, and they're great ways to have your kids learn about their Catholic faith in a fun, enjoyable fashion as part of our EW10 Faith Factory on TV, but also on demand. And our topic, Satan's Preparations for Effective Temptations. He's got you in his sights. Find out more from Father's book, Christ versus Satan in Our Daily Lives, available through the EW10 Religious Catalog. You better get it now. Father's got a multiplicity of books coming our way. And the book of the month from our own publishing company here at EW10, Taught by Ten, a psychologist father learns from his 10 children. We knew somebody was teaching Dr. Ray. Now we found out who it is by our own Dr. Ray Garendi. And with that, we turn to Father Spitzer out on the West Coast. Great to see you, Father. If you'd like to kick us off with a prayer, that'd be great. You bet. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us, especially the blessing of this ministry and our ability to serve in it. We ask you to send your Holy Spirit down upon Doug, myself, our whole audience this day, so that whatever we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. Asking all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Very good. We've got a lot to, to talk about. We've got some questions to get to from last week we never got to. And couple of articles to kick things off, uh, following up sort of on the whole Dobbs decision and what's going on in our crazy mm -hmm. world. Uh, apparently, uh, the word is out, and this came from a, a Crisis uh, Magazine article a couple of weeks ago, that post-Dobbs, you know, dealing with uh, the overturning of the Roe v. Wade, that apparently uh -huh. vasectomies are on the rise. There's this push by, for men to have vasectomies to play their part since their, their future girlfriend or whatever can't get an abortion, apparently. Well, I'm not surprised uh, to hear that uh, uh, that's another way. But, of course, uh, um, you know, um, even though it's uh, certainly non-commensurate with uh, the philosophy of life and marriage that uh, we hold very, very dear um, in the Catholic Church, um, it is uh, a much more... Uh, 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 you know, the Dobbs decision prevents abortions, and mm -hmm. we like that aspect, and uh, uh, we'll just have to, you know, retrain people uh, in this other aspect, or to, uh, hopefully they will not mm -hmm. learn the hard way that this is a terrible way to approach things. Um, but, um, I mean, it's typical of the culture. Um, their fallback position is anti-life itself, mm -hmm. and 
So uh, all I can say is uh, um, I'm, I'm so happy that the, the Dobbs decision is in place. I'm very happy that uh, we can move forward on trying to now on that good foundation, mm -hmm. the declaration that abortion is not a fundamental right, never was a fundamental right, was never declared into existence as a fundamental right, as if killing people could be declared a fundamental right, when of course it's contrary to the inalienable right to life. Uh, you know, the whole idea is, is so funny, but in any case, the um, or tragic, but right. the, uh, the point is pretty clear that um, that um, you know, this is a typical anti-life uh, response, and uh, I'm not surprised. I don't know what I can do except right. talk about re-education and how life is so important to marriage, but also life is so important to everything, including right. the culture, including our own existence. Right, and something you should pray about certainly. And I, and I always yeah. think about in situations like this, like even it's kind of an odd way of thinking, but with Saint Ignatius, who always said, whenever something dramatic happens or you know in your life don't do anything take your yeah. time right don't make exactly. quick decisions so people who are confused Absolutely. or being misled by the media of what's going on or not going on should not make yeah. decisions right away yeah i agree you i know, totally so. agree with that and uh, uh just uh, be careful about what you're doing and how you're reacting right. uh because uh some Bisectomies are claimed to be reversible, but they're not, mm -hmm. and so um, you know many of them are not, and so you don't want to uh, wind up doing something that permanently alters the status of your uh, of right. Uh, and as we've seen, you know, of your marriage, even if, if technically something like that is possible, how many young women were fed the lie that don't worry, you can delay, 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 and it'll still be okay. Yeah. You can still have a child. Well, you can. But the likelihood of having a miscarriage goes up. The likelihood that you don't conceive at all goes up. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah. No, that's very true. All, all right. of it. Yeah. I mean, uh, and there's so many misimpressions out there. Uh, you know, the association, the American Association for Pro-Life uh, Obstetricians and Gynecologists has just uh, done a wonderful response. I just saw a preliminary mm -hmm. paper uh, that's been published um, uh, to all the, the seven major myths that have been uh, uh, promulgated by, uh, you know, uh, Planned Parenthood, et cetera, mm -hmm. since the Dobbs decision. Uh, and that's, right. um, yes. you know, I think I it'll be public right. next week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it should be really, really, uh, uh, you know, publicized and hopefully can be shared with a lot of people. I think they really hit on all the, uh, the major issues and respond to it with the facts. Right, exactly. Well, because lying has become uh, a pastime, unfortunately, in, in the world we live yeah. in today. Uh, another story yeah. outside of the Daily Wire, a uh, major victory, federal appeals court blocks Biden effort to force doctors to perform gender transition surgeries and abortions. This one had to do with a case that involved the Franciscan Alliance, the Catholic Health Air Network in Indiana, and Illinois was involved along with the Christian Medical and Dental Association. Uh, having to do with stopping the Biden administration's HHS efforts. So basically it says uh, they were trying to require, this is the administration, Biden administration, that required yeah. Christian medical facilities to provide gender transition surgeries and abortion. So uh, no conscience, no, no protection. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, that's, that's very typical. Again, it's a, a strategy to take the rights of those hospitals 
uh, away, and especially private hospitals, Christian hospitals, Catholic hospitals, to try and remove their rights not to do what is repulsive uh, to their consciences and repulsive uh, to their um, ethics, both denomina denominationally and as individuals. Uh, individuals. So yeah, it's uh, it's a pretty um, another, uh, as it were, anti-liberty. Right. Um, uh, you know, uh, you know, Biden move, and uh, it uh, really gets uh, irksome after a while that this, you know, people can claim they're in favor of a liberty and at the same time right, right. remove the rights of all these, uh, you know, religions to right. to act according to their own conscience and teaching. Reminds me of years ago, I had a, I had a coffee cup. On one side, it said all opinions are welcome. The other side said, who asked you? And that's kind of the world we live in. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, we're open yeah, to everybody's exactly. opinion except yours because it doesn't yeah. agree with mine. <laughs> exactly. Here's another article. Uh, that's in, a good Doug Keck cup. <laughs> in, in, a, in a registered uh, National Catholic Register, our newspaper, um, talking about something happened in the last couple of weeks. Scientists speak out against the WHO's gender mainstreaming manual. Now, considering the record of the WHO during COVID, uh, it makes anyone suspect of, I think, most of what they're talking about. But they've recently announced the update of a widely used gender mainstreaming manual intended for medical staff throughout and worldwide to assist in addressing forms of health-related discrimination in light of new scientific evidence and conceptual progress on gender, health, and development. I don't know what the scientific evidence they're quoting is. Anyway, they go on to say the intention is to go beyond binary approaches to gender and health, claiming that gender identity exists on a continuum, that sex is not limited to male or female. The statement also referred to an expansion of the concept of intersectionality, uh, which the WHO claims determines how gender power dynamics interact with other hierarchies of privilege or disadvantage, resulting in inequality, differential health outcomes for different people. So typical jargoning. Um, you know, that we hear wokeism uh, 2.0. Oh, no, but it's uh, it rivals Newspeak 101. I mean, uh, uh, right out of 1984, so I, I just can't believe it. I mean, uh, uh, but the, the first two things, you know, are, uh, first of all, that uh, if you're going to call gender, um, uh, uh, transgender surgery, if you're going to try and mainstream these things, or even transgender philosophy, uh, we have to be careful about two consequences, uh, both uh, emotionally and physically. First, on the emotional level, I've spoken about this many times on the program, but uh, you can expect 10 years after a transgender surgery, a sexual reassignment surgery, you can expect a 20 times increase in suicide rates, right. a 2,000% increase in suicide rates. So there's something right there that clues you in. Oh yes, for the first few years after the surgery, people are happy. Mm -hmm. But as you move forward, there's not just the phenomenon of buyer's regret, there is leftover anxieties that should have been treated in a pre-adolescent 
that now have been you know covered mm -hmm. over by the surgery and still the anxieties are remaining the anxieties are growing and then on top of it there's buyer's regret because the sexual reassignment surgery is not resolving the anxiety that they were trying to resolve with the surgery and so again uh, these are um, uh, the 20 times increase this was uh, uh, a very right, long right. uh, survey in Sweden a, a friendly nation uh, you know certainly uh, open to transgender uh, uh, philosophy and also uh, we now see overall that the worldwide statistic is 19 times higher uh, after 10 years so uh, just beware yeah, and, uh, that this is not right. good emotionally. And, and right, and the study that had been used to push this has been shown to be quite, uh, you know, have a flawed. lot of problems and, and flawed. Yeah. Right, exactly. Flawed. Yeah, Mayor and McHugh and McHugh have uh, uh, published uh, some really excellent um, uh, articles on this right. to uh, uh, Johns Hopkins professors. Um, and uh, you can actually just put right. their names into Google and you can see they're really excellent articles on this. Right, and that's, um, and, yeah, and we want to reinforce to everybody while we're talking about this, sometimes tragedy and comedy come together. Some of these things are so absurd, they make you laugh. It doesn't yeah. mean that there's not people out there who are definitely suffering, have issues, et cetera, as we've talked about before, who need oh. support, need help, and certainly need our prayers. Yeah. I know you would take the lead on that. I want to make sure that I yeah. say that so people understand uh, yeah, absolutely. how we're talking about and, it, right? Uh, and th that's the whole reason for exposing the myth. Right. You know, the, the myth is that sexual reassignment surgery will cure the anxieties and the uh, gender dysphoria that happens because of the anxieties uh, that, that they're actually saying that this is going to be helpful to that end. It will not be helpful to that end. It only covers over that anxiety for a few years with a false sense of recovery. And then it exacerbates the anxiety because first of all, the pre-adolescent anxiety, which comes from physical or sexual abuse and comes from anxiety in the household and comes from uh, latent uh, homosexual desires combined into a package that really, you know, uh, produces a kind of gender dysphoria. This, you know, that those anxieties, they never get resolved. And, and uh, this surgery just covers it over. And then what happens is when they resurface and they start resurfacing about five years after the surgery and they resurface and intensify with the buyer's regret, right? Mm -hmm. the, that the person goes, my gosh, I've altered myself physically. I can't change back, right? I'm never gonna be the same again. It's irreversible. I've kind of mutilated myself. Mm -hmm. And then that double kind of gripping power uh, produces that 20 times increase in suicide rates. And so uh, all I can say is uh, this is not being talked about. It's very well established and, and I think people really need to get clued in right. that this is a, a, a real, real problem and we're going to produce plenty more of these late consequence Right. Uh, things and, and you, you think oh uh, it'll all be over once I get the gender transition it will right. not be over well so many so, it uh, seems like in so many cases I guess it's the, the evil one in that way that so many bad decisions or things that we do whether drugs pornography all these kind of things initially has this very positive 
at least to ourselves, aspect to it. But it, the longer it goes on, then then the, the, the downsides start to show up. Yeah, I mean, all the time, the, the, the typical rationalization we hear is this is a victimless sin, mm. or it's a victimless, uh, you know, um, uh, a problem or a victimless crime or whatever it is. And so you say, what, so what if I take these drugs? You know, and at the end of the day, though, as you begin to look at the cumulative effects, mm -hmm. as your brain is kind of burning out, as you become less and less efficacious in your life, as you, uh, you know, obviously have symptomatic uh, and emotional uh, mm -hmm. disorders, you know, that accompany these things, uh, you know, people go, well, maybe, maybe it wasn't so uh, you know, harmless after all. Right. Maybe it wasn't so victimless after all. And um, uh, you know, obviously, with with the uh, with the the drugs themselves, right. uh, you can pretty much see with the drugs themselves that there is a uh, well, today, a real problem. Right. And we're seeing, you know, with obviously with marijuana, etc. I mean, at least uh, the the ver the varieties that are available now are much more toxic in the sense of their strength. And they're starting to yeah. see some studies on THC, which aren't aren't that good. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So I mean, yeah, cumulatively, I mean, it's the same problem. Uh, we just, uh, if we want something, mm -hmm. we we collectively rationalize it, and then as the studies right, keep coming right. out and saying, uh, I think this rationalization is not holding any water. I think this logic is flawed. I think the data is flawed. You're not considering these following consequences right. that do need to be cataloged. People just cover it over and they pretend like it doesn't right. exist. Right. And you won't get it on the news media because the news media will back the collective rationalization of the group. That's where their bread and butter comes from. People want to hear uh, the rationalization more or less right. uh, given credence. And of course, if it's for social change, mm -hmm. if it's for greater autonomy, if it's quote unquote for greater freedom, even though that greater freedom in the end will make you much more unfree, mm -hmm. right? Much more anxiety ridden. Anx you know, as the anxiety level increases, right. your freedom is not increasing. As the depression level increases, your freedom is not increasing. As, as basically the right. substance abuse is increasing, Increasing, your freedom is not increasing. Let's face facts. I mean, all these things about greater freedom, yes, that may exist uh, in, in your own mind for a year or two mm. until the consequences of what you're doing produce severe restrictions right. to that freedom and autonomy in the long run. And you wind up, of course, uh, you know, sometimes you can wind up, a, a, you know, a, really right. a tragic case of, uh, you know, almost being immobilized. Uh, by what um, you know you right. have done to yourself. Right. Well, so, yeah. An said. old boss, an old boss of mine. I know. I think I mentioned once before. Used to say, and it seems yeah. like the world we live in today. Don't let the facts get in the way of what we want to do here. Okay. Yeah. So you know, it's <laughs> exactly. it's that idea. You know, like uh, this is what we want right to do. Right the Groucho Marx. Right. Movie. Right. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, here's an article just before we go to the questions. Uh, Monsignor Pope sure. has a wonderful blog, and he's been featured on EWTN over yeah. the years. And great guy. And he talks a little bit about, and I thought it was interesting because we always talk about, you know, judging people and not being judged. And he points mm -hmm. out in, uh, in, in John's Gospel the idea, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, 
He goes on to say, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. John 3, 16, 18. But then he says, but there's a second part. But whoever does not believe has already been condemned because he has not believed in the name of God, one and only Son. And he goes on to point out, as if you've talked about before, is that why are some then excluded from heaven? And we actually did a Catholic Sphere show on this. It's not because a mean and hateful God seeks to keep them out. No, it's that they prefer the darkness. They're accustomed to darkness. They prefer it. And thus the Lord teaches that the judgment that excludes the unrepentant is due to the Lord recognizing their preferences and consigning them to the outer dark that they prefer. In reality, they can't stand the bright light. Yeah, I mean, the word does not believe in the second part of that Joanine mm -hmm. passage, which is a great passage. That word does not believe actually is an active disbelief. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. not a passive one that happens to you. So, I mean, it, it, like you, you, you weren't born in, in a country that never, where you could never hear about Christianity right, in any right. real way. It's an active disbelief where you actively reject. You, you've heard the word, you understand the word, but you reject the word of God. And that's why Monsignor Pope is saying that, uh, yeah, people who are in that situation, if you actively reject the teaching of Jesus Christ, and that includes his moral teaching, of course, uh, if you actively reject it, uh, what he, you're just moving into the darkness. You're choosing right. another kind of life. You're choosing to go away from the light, mm -hmm. right? And, and the light may be, you know, harder to live. It may not you know, satisfy your ego and it may not satisfy your sensual appetites in one particular respect, but your right. spiritual appetites, you know, if you move in the direction of the light and of Jesus Christ, your your true nature, your desire for perfect truth, love, goodness, beauty, and home, your spiritual nature, your desire for holiness, your desire for the good, your desire to be participate in the good, to participate on the side of, of cosmic good and the struggle between uh, you know, cosmic good and evil, right? Your desire to be part of, you know, the, the kingdom of light, that all goes away. You mm -hmm. start choosing that path to perdition, and the darkness gets darker and darker, as Jesus keeps repeating, right? And how dark will the darkness be? You, you get so deep into it, it's really hard to turn back. People think, oh, I can just turn back, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, I'm way down the pike here. I'm addicted to my ego. I'm addicted to this narcissistic stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm addicted to all these sensual things. I'm addicted to a group of friends who just promotes all this stuff in me. But when I want, I can just repent and turn back. Yes, that's true. There's always the possibility of repentance. I encourage it. But boy, I'm telling you, don't wait till you get down yeah. that pike because it's going to be really hard to turn. When, you know, at the end of the day, when you have to give up that stuff, or at least even make a firm purpose of amendment to try and give that stuff up, it's going to be hard. And right. there's going to be resistance. And that evil spirit has power over you. The more you buy into him, the more you take stuff from him, the harder it is. You've got those talons just right. clamped into you. And I'm telling you, it's harder and harder to turn away from it. So anyway, that's right. The, well, I think the with so many things that happen with these that are, uh, that are tough in, in life is, you know, this idea that theoretically, yes, you could do that. The question is, what's the likelihood? What's the percentages yeah. that you'll actually be able to do that when the time comes? Let's yeah. move on to some uh, questions. Yeah.
uh, sure. people sent us. Uh, Dear Father Spitzer, I have an addiction to pornography. Whenever I slip up, I'm always quick to go to confession. But right before I leave for church, I begin to feel nervous as if the priest might not absolve my sin this time because I keep messing up. Is this nervousness warranted or is the devil to blame? Anonymous. Uh, well, Anonymous, here's what I'm going to tell you. No, it is not warranted. You go right back to confession time after time after time. You just keep doing that. The main thing, of course, is, he, of course, he's going to forgive your sins. I mean, every priest knows how addictive pornography can be. It, obviously, it's the fastest growing addiction in the U.S. by far, probably throughout the whole world. I've only seen the U.S. statistics. Mm -hmm. But compared to, you know, like drug addiction, after all this time, about 5% of the United States. Uh, alcohol addiction, after all this time, about 5% of the United States. Porn, uh, pornography addiction, probably within the last 15 years, has grown to be 10% of the United States are addicts to it. And of course, we know that it is not victimless uh, sin at all. The pornography addiction causes a loss of emotional intimacy within right. marriage. It doubles and, and now about 2.4 times the rate of divorces because people feel that there's, you know, the wife feels that there's another sexual partner, uh, you know, right there in the marriage with them. And, and so, you know, essentially the divorce rate goes up, the job loss rate goes up, financial loss rate goes up. I mean, really significantly, I've got these uh, statistics right. in my new book, The Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church, coming out next month. The main thing, though, to remember is if you look at this, you can see that uh, this is not victimless sin at all, and it is so, so addictive. Do priests know this? Of course priests know this. Of course we want to help you. But one thing you can do, though, is, it, you know, if the thing just keeps resurging, and you just, you find like you don't have any control over it, you may want to think about two uh, strategies. The first is to just maybe get uh, onto an online group that, you know, Catholic group that helps with pornography addiction, and there are several of them uh, that you can find that will help you to do that. The second thing is, is to get some software uh, for your computer uh, where you can actually allow people um, to see what um, websites you're, you're accessing at any given time. You, you have to give permission, of course, for them to do that, but they would be in a group that calls an accountability group where they can help you uh, to say, you know, hey, Joe, you know, um, you're, you're going back here. You know, we're just trying to help you out, but, uh, you know, don't, don't do right. this. We, you know, and, and they can help you, and they can pray for you. They can get you stuff. They'll get you over you know, the, the real yeah. um, difficult, challenging period because that break-off time from the pornography, that's the hardest part. But once you really have broken off, it's like alcohol addiction. It gets easier as time passes. So if you can just get through that initial period, maybe with accountability group uh, or software that does that or also with a... Uh, uh, you know, a, a, a group, you know, like mm -hmm. uh, a Sex Addicts Anonymous, but you can, you know, also there's online uh, um, groups of this, not uh, always in, in person, uh, do that kind of thing. I think you would, uh, um, may right. find yourself very much assisted in getting over this if you really are addicted and you just, you know, you can't uh, right. stop it. You just, 
this, that's probably the best method. Yeah, it's, uh, all of these things that are, you know, don't harm anybody, they harm everybody. Mm -hmm. That's the big lie that people get yeah, told up Yeah, the big from. lie. Exactly. Oh, yeah. No, another question. Dear Father Spitzer, as we come up towards our break, uh, a consequence of the fall of Adam and Eve is suffering and misery. Isn't it unfair that all of us who had nothing to do with Adam and Eve's decision must go through so much pain because of them? I know that God is perfectly just, but I just cannot logically reconcile his justice with this matter. Would you help me understand, Gabriella? Okay, Gabriella, it, it is true to say that uh, the, the sin of Adam and Eve produces this concupiscence, right, this, this uh, tendency towards sin, and that tendency towards sin uh, you know, you know, uh, has produced a great deal of, of suffering uh, when we are repentant for that sin and trying to recover from it or from the consequences of that sin that we cause to ourselves and cause to others. Uh, there's no doubt about that. However, at the very same time, um, you know, um, uh, you know the, the church, you know, kind of splits this uh, question into two parts, right? You know, why would God allow evil uh, you know, beyond just the original sin aspect to it, you mm -hmm. know, is there another underlying logic uh, to why he would do so? And the answer to the question is, well, yes, for two reasons. Number one, because human freedom depends on our ability to, well, basically do unloving things. Mm -hmm. So just think about this for just one moment. Suppose you only had one option, uh, Gabriella, and that option was to do loving things. But you never had a choice to do something unloving, something sort of mean-spirited mm -hmm. or evil to your neighbor, that you could never do that. Of course, you wouldn't be free. And indeed, the love that you showed would only be from a program that God installed in you. It wouldn't be from you. Mm -hmm. But if your love is going to be generated from within you, it has to be freely chosen. But wait a minute. If it's going to be freely chosen, then you have to have a realistic other option not to love. Mm -hmm. So God, basically, if he's going to um, give you the choice uh, to love and, and therefore enable your love to come from you instead of from his programming, he's got to allow you to do some evil things, some bad things, some unloving things in the world. And so that's the first reason, uh, you know, we can cause right. evil in the world and he's got to allow it. And so that's a second reason why there's suffering in the world. And a third reason why We're going to have to wait for the third reason. Oh. People are going to have to stay with us, <laughs> wait for the break. And uh, the cliffhanger's coming, part three with Father Spitzer. So don't leave us. We'll be right back. Thank you so much for staying with us here in Father Spitzer's universe, talking about the topic of Satan customizes temptations. But Father was right in the middle of finishing 
an answer there. Go ahead. You have part three coming yeah, up. Yeah, so to Gabriella's question, there is even a third reason why God allows suffering, mm -hmm. but this pertains not so much to suffering caused by human beings. We just looked at that one. This is suffering that's caused by nature, the seeming blind forces of nature. So why would God allow, for example, natural events to cause suffering to us? Be for actually two big reasons. Because we actually need challenges in our lives. That's the first thing of real import. If God just left us in a pleasure bubble, if he just said, okay, Gabriella, uh, you, you know, you, you just think of what you want and, and I'll, you know, fulfill it. I'll, you want some pleasure? You know, get there. You want a new car? You, you get it. You want never want to be disappointed with anything. Uh, I'll make sure you're never disappointed. Okay, so what has he created? He certainly hasn't created a virtuous person, not a noble person, not someone who would sacrifice of himself for the good of anybody else, not a person who has any interest in what the good is in itself. He's created a nice little utilitarian hedonist, and that's where you will stay for the rest of your life, because boy, once you are addicted to that little pleasure bubble, you'll never want to get out of it. But God wouldn't do that to us. So he's put some natural, you know, he, he creates a world that's not quite perfect, right? A world that can really cause us some challenges. And so the first thing he wants us to do is rise above those challenges. He wants us to show courage and self-discipline to master those challenges. He also wants us to work with others to master those challenges, to be on a noble pursuit, right? He wants us, uh, you know, to, to use our, our knowledge and the, create the scientific basis for new uh, medicines and so forth to rise above those challenges. And those are some reasons why initially he wants that. But let's just take a look at what would love be like? What would love be like if there were no suffering in the world? What would love be like if we were never challenged? I mean, our love would be in its infancy from the very beginning. I mean, compassion, well, we show compassion when, you know, to people when they are suffering, mm -hmm. right? We, we basically uh, allow ourselves to look at life, uh, you know, much more deeply when we experience a challenge or suffering in our lives. Isn't it really the truth that, you know, we could live a superficial life as long as, you know, the pleasure doesn't stop, you know, we'd live a superficial life. But the minute you get that challenge in there, the minute for you, you, you see, you know, something happens to you and you, you have a need and you see that you can't perfectly fulfill those conditions, it makes you stop and think about everything. What's the meaning of life? Am I living for my life? I mean, death. Isn't death one of the just the worst challenges you could ever be encountered with? Yet look at, you know, if we didn't have death, we'd never be called to some sort of a, a conclusive determinative decision. Mm. I got to do something with my life now. I got to make a difference with my life now. I just can't be on the old, you know, uh, uh, get the pleasure, get the ego gratification circuit. I got to have my ego challenged now. And I got to rise above my ego now to serve other people now. But how am I going to 
ever be induced to do that unless I experience challenge and suffering, unless others experience challenge and suffering that I can respond to and serve with and get together with other people to serve, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, challenges are not bad things at all. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, direct suffering is not a bad thing at all. It's what's really calling us out of ourselves, and more importantly, calling us out of our ego centrality, calling us out of our just base sensuality, and just trying, you know, in some sense it's saying, you gotta look for something more significant. And of course, the more significant thing is service, the contributive, and faith. You ever gonna let God into your life without some form of suffering? Really, you think you can? You just think, oh, I'm just gonna do this, but I'll tell you something, the times in my life where I've made a lot of spiritual progress mm -hmm. is when everything came crashing down. When I had a hole in my heart that the Holy Spirit could take a Mack truck full of grace and drive it right into. I mean, the key thing, look at Paul's 2 Corinthians 12. Look at the wisdom of that passage, right? When Paul says, I've been given a thorn in the flesh, an angel of Satan to to keep me from getting proud. And of course, I, I think that that uh, was blindness uh, mm -hmm. myself. And I got a lot of good reasons for thinking that, but I'm not gonna go into that now. The main thing though is something's happening to Paul. I think it's something physical. I think it's some form of challenge, weakness and suffering. And then Paul says these words of wisdom. He says, but I've come to discover that in my weakness, let's say it was blindness, in my weakness is my strength. For as I grow weaker, Christ grows stronger in me. I'm letting him in. I'm letting him matter. I'm letting his view of morality and his view of life's meaning to affect me ever more deeply. And this oftentimes happens to mm -hmm. us in times of challenge. Is it absolutely necessary? No, we can grow without that kind of suffering as well. But when you combine suffering with faith, Right when you put those two things together, that's when you start making real spiritual progress. And the saints will say this too, yeah, yeah. right? That the cross is not something which is accursed. Right. The cross oftentimes is what you know leads people right to the the doorstep of God. Because they have to we rely have to on, choose to go in. Because they have to rely yeah. that much more on God. Absolutely. Right. We have to rely on God. We have to rely on others. And of course, we have to see others who need to rely on us. And we have to serve them and serve God by serving them and serve them by serving God. We have to, all of that logic, right, is, mm -hmm. is, is brought to bear. And by the way, Gabrielle, your question's so good. My dad had this real brief answer, you know, uh, he, he told me, he redid a parable uh, mm -hmm. that I think originally was a rabbinical parable, mm -hmm. but anyway, he redid it to answer the question of suffering, and, and he put it this way, he said, you know, once upon a time God created you know, all human beings at this big, huge banquet table, and human beings uh, unfortunately didn't have any elbow joints oh, or right. neck joints, so basically God, you know, uh, created all these people at the table, and then laid a sumptuous feast in front of all of them. And then as uh, 
uh, you know, people started commenting. One group uh, uh, over there started commenting, well, uh, this just definitely proves that God cannot be all-powerful. Because if God were all-powerful, he'd be all-knowing. And he would have known that to create people with elbow joints and neck joints would have been much more perfect than not to create people, uh, to create people without elbow joints and so forth. So, uh, of course, God's not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. The second group sitting there, they're speculating. They go, oh, no. Uh, you know, the, you know, if God were really, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, God, He'd have to be all powerful and all knowing. The problem is God's not all loving. Mm. I mean, that guy is just out there. He just loves seeing us wriggle at the end of the skewer, and he just wants to put some suffering in our life because deep down inside, he's a sadist. Then the third group, the Nietzscheans, are over there, and they go, "Oh, stop it! If God exists, then God would have to be all knowing and all loving, and therefore God doesn't exist." But then there was this fourth group at the end of the table. And the group at the end of the table were not so much concerned about God, but so much concerned more about, well, what could they do to help the people on the other side of the table? And they discovered that uh, they could feed the other person across the table without an elbow joint, and the other person could feed them uh, across the table, and that God preferred that they would discover and choose love through this suffering, this apparent suffering of not being able to feed themselves, right? Um, that he, he preferred that we learn this and choose this uh, from our own hearts. And that was a much more perfect world when we did it. Uh, we would open up the very possibility of love and that possibility of love, the very possibility of our eternal joy, the very possibility of our eternal fulfillment, our absolute meaning and purpose in life instead of just the mere sensual satisfaction right. uh, you know, of, uh, of eating by ourselves, the ego satisfaction of eating by ourselves. And I thought about that parable and I thought, my dad's not such a, a, a you know, dumb guy after all, a pretty smart guy. And I thought to myself, that answers the question to me. Yeah, God's not going to do it for us because we need to choose love and suffering, at least challenge towards suffering, away from suffering. That is going to be, right. and the challenge to serve, that's going to be uh, uh, definitely right. served by, you know, suffering in our lives. Right. To paraphrase uh, Mark Twain, who said, when I was 18, I never, my father was an ignoramus. I had never met a man who was so unintelligent. And then I met him at 21, <laughs> uh, and he was the most intelligent man I had ever known. Yeah. And I realized <laughs> it was amazing how much he had learned in just three years. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> but anyway. Exactly. So let's exactly. go on to the, the book. And, how, and Satan's tactics uh, on uh, uh, in the book. Uh, one of the things I wanted, let's see, we said the uh, idea of a moral commitment. Uh, this is on page 34. Mm -hmm. Recall how temptation works and how prudence, temperance, and fortitude uh, mitigate it. I, we talked about this earlier. Uh, these, are, these are words you hardly hear anymore. To be prudent, people yeah. go, like, sounds like being prudish. Temperance means you're yeah. not having a good time. And fortitude yeah. is you're too stupid to know when you're wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Boy, I, I'll tell you, that is the, the current cultural propaganda, isn't it? Yet at the same time, these were three of the four cardinal virtues along with justice. And, uh, but they are our, you know, the first step in our, our liberation uh, from sin is, you know, first of all, we, if you have prudence, right, you know what's good and what isn't good. And you know 
at least you can plan a strategy for getting to the good, mm. uh, right? It, it, you know, you've got that prudential way. You know, okay, here are the inhibitors. Here are the challenges I have to get over. But prudence tells you not only that this goal is good or that mm. this other goal is evil, prudence also gives you that sense of how to get there in a very smart way. Mm. So if you cultivate that, that is a real first step to dealing with temptation and responding to the devil. Prudent people don't sucker as much for uh, Satan's temptations and rationalizations as imprudent people do. Mm. So prudence is a good virtue to develop. Temperance, it's so important for dealing with temptation because temperance is the way of, it's not just knowledge that, you know, unmitigated, uh, you know, um, essential fulfillment is going to kill you. Unmitigated ego fulfillment is going to kill you. That's more prudence, right? Prudence will tell you, you know, uh, if you just go for unmitigated ego fulfillment, you're going to die, and you're going to die without much purpose, and you're going to die without God. Mm -hmm. And in the same thing, you just go for unmitigated sensual fulfillment, you're just going to be a little hedonistic blob getting your pleasure fulfilled like an alcoholic, mm -hmm. you know, drunk out of his mind for the rest of his life. Uh, okay, uh, I, I don't want to do that. You know, I, I, I guess I need to mitigate sensuality and ego centrality in my life. Now, that's really prudence. What temperance does mm -hmm. is temperance puts it into action. It tries to develop a habit around it. So what temperance is trying to do is say, okay, I do want to mitigate my desire for sensuality and egocentricity. I, I, I got to get that done. I know prudentially it's the right thing to do, but right now I don't have a habit to do that. My habit right now is to just, oh, there's an ego satisfaction. I'm going for it. Ah, there's essential satisfaction. I'll go for it, right? So the, 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 I'm, I'm that way right now, but I don't want to be that way. I want to be not just, you know, of course every Christian uh, philosopher and, and theologian has always said how important temperance is, but it's not just them. It's Plato. It's Aristotle. It's the Stoics, right? All of them. You know, these, these, these really, you know, non-Christian philosophers knew that they just couldn't let their egos and their sensuality have, you know, full sway in their lives. Right. That they had to control it, that, that, that they had to, you know, mitigate its effects so that when, you know, I, I'm going to do something that's really going to jeopardize my family, jeopardize my career, jeopardize my religious faith, jeopardize my relationship with God, jeopardize my relationship with my wife, whatever it is, I, I'm going to stop it before it ever, and this is the point, temperance nips it in the bud. Mm -hmm. It's got that discipline. It knows if I let this go, if I let my imagination go, if I keep entertaining this stuff, if I keep moving toward action, the, the desire is going to get stronger and stronger until it just squeezes my neck. And the key thing is, I know I got to nip it in the bud, mm -hmm. but then I've got that capacity to just go, stop. And I stop it when I can stop it. I stop it as the temptation initiates. And it's that just that instant kind of uh, response. Now, today we know, too, that this requires some training of the subconscious mind. But that's another subject. But prudence, mm -hmm. I mean, temperance, really important to not just know that I have to nip it in the bud, that willpower to just say, stop it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to stop it right now before it gets out of hand. Bam! 
and, and to just put an end to it. Mm -hmm. That is that temperance that's really important. Plato, as I said, the Stoics, everybody kind of, you know, Marcus Aurelius knew. Uh, you just couldn't give your the moderation in all your, things. Kind of thing that's that right. To kind of say, right. That's right. And finally, the same thing with fortitude. Right. Fortitude is, again, it's an act of the will. It's a discipline, a habit of the will. So remember, the will is what's moving my thinking into action. Mm -hmm. So the will has an emotional component, right? Because emotion does transform uh, thoughts into action. But it's not just the emotional component. There's a free voluntary component that can initiate the emotion of, I want to do the right thing. I want to do the long-term good thing for me, my family, etc. I want to do the long-term good thing for the kingdom of God. I want to obey, you know, the commandments of God. So that is my thought, my prudential long-term thought about the good. And now I can see that, oh gosh, if I'm going to uh, overcome an addiction, or if I'm going to get to this good goal that I would want to have, a, a, you know, this family with these children, and to do these things, and to raise them up, you know, with, uh, uh, you know, in the church, and to raise them up with Christ, etc. If I'm going to do that, I, I got to commit myself to a plan. I got to commit myself to some action. Now that's good. The plan is a good thing. Having goals is a good thing. But remember, there's always going to be challenges, right? People are going to try and, you know, stop you sometimes. Mm -hmm. Or the distractions of life will try and stop you. Jesus' parable about the seeds that go into the thorns and, you know, and so forth and so on that drop by the path and, and you know, or get scorched by the sun. The main thing to remember, though, is that you've got this willpower that says, I don't care about the challenge. I don't care about this enemy who's trying to stop me. I don't I'm going to find a way around this. I'm going to get over this. Or if I can't get over this or around this, I'm going to make a, a, a backup plan. And I'm going to do the second best thing or the third best thing. But I'm going to find a way to get to my goal. It may not be the perfect way. It may not be the best way. Mm -hmm. But I'll get, if I can't get over and I make multiple attempts to get around it and over it and everything, I'm going to just keep struggling at it like marriage, right? That's a... Mm -hmm. That's a long-term commitment. That is a big deal. And you think, oh, I, everything will be just like it was for the first few weeks of marriage. As everybody knows, new, 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 new. You, this requires fortitude. This requires willpower. This requires stick-to-witness willpower. This requires that the act of the will be there. But what's the point that you have to um, do with um, fortitude? You've got to control two negative emotions. The first one is fear. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to somehow nip fear in the bud. And I've got to nip the discouragement um, uh, factor in the bud. So if I can get those two things of I'm not going to let discouragement get to me, I'm not going to let fear get to me, I'm going to nip it in the bud when it happens, and I'm going to go rational instead of emotional fearful or emotional discouragement. I'm going to just nip it in the bud, and what I'm going to do then is I'm going to replace it with, okay, some questions. How am I going to get around this 
person who's trying to stop me? How am I going to get around this challenge? How am I going to find the right people to help me get over this obstacle? How am I going to uh, find the right um, uh, strategy or path? Or what's my fallback plan? If this doesn't occur, okay, how can I stop it, uh, you know, a problem here at this level and then proceed in a different way from there, et cetera? But if I start thinking rationally, about not the question whether, whether I should remain married, but the question how. How am I going to do this? The mm -hmm. rational question, right. how. If I can do that and nip that discouragement and fear in the bud before, you know, because it, it comes on emotionally very powerfully, you know, and, and it's hard to stop for a second. You know, and I, I remember, you know, when I first started going blind, I couldn't read the Hebrew pointing and everything else. Mm. Ah, you know, the fear and the discouragement, you know, right. just blasting in on me until I finally, you know, just, you know, I prayed first and foremost, God help me. Right. You know, what am I supposed to do here? You know, and finally, of course, it's how am I going to carry forth on my call to the priesthood? How am I going to serve the kingdom of God? Okay, they told me I'm going to go start really seriously going blind when I'm 60 years old. And then I'm going to probably be blind by the time I'm 65 to 70 years old. Okay, how am I going to deal with that when mm -hmm. I get there? But the how, how, how is the rational question. Don't let the weather question get into you. Right. Don't let the fear and the discouragement get to you. Nip it in the right. bud and say, I ain't asking that question whether. Right. I'm moving ahead on the question how. And I'm telling you, right. that is a good virtue. It's a habit. So once you build up that prudence and that uh, the uh, the uh, um, temperance right. and the fortitude, right. I'm telling you, you are a free person. And well, that's freedom in the right. real sense. Remember Father yeah. Goyer, Shell used to say, when troubles hit you, don't ask what, ask why. Not uh, uh, Don't ask why, ask what. Why? Don't ask why it's yeah. happening to me, but what am I going to do with this? How am I supposed to yeah. work with what it is? One last thing, just yeah. in the last two minutes, I sure, thought it was interesting. Right. You love uh, C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, so you have the yeah. reference in here about uh, the fact that when the patient starts thinking about universals, metaphysics, ideas that might present evidence for God, it's always best to distract him. The advice is something purely mundane, like lunch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, so beautifully put. Yeah, so uh, the, 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 in the book, The Screwtape Letters, mm -hmm. of course, the, uh, there's this very wise uh, uh, devil, Uncle Screwtape, who's counseling his little uh, nephew, Wormwood, uh, more inexperienced in the ways of Satan and temptation, how to do things with this right. patient. But this patient, you know, suddenly starts thinking, you know, about logic and metaphysics and, and of course, uh, you know, the, you know, Uncle uh, Screwtape says, oh my gosh, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, whatever you do, do, do not let him go there. Don't think you can start inserting logical reasons uh, for his non-belief in God or something. You'll, he might look for logical reasons to believe in God, and then you'll be on the side of the enemy. In the, remember, the enemy is the church and God mm -hmm. in, in, the, 
in the book. So the idea is, you know, he'll be, uh, the, he'll play right into the church and God's plan. Mm -hmm. So whatever you do, get him out of that mode, but without a logical challenge, that will call him back into it. Mm -hmm. oh, something mundane, mm -hmm. like lunch. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, he does do this, and the patient, you know, <laughs> right. Sometimes thinking it, about it's lunch. just a he question of, of how you're distracted, right? That's what, and yeah, we live in a exactly. world that's so consummately uh, filled with distractions. With that being said, we have to go. Uh, yeah. So if you'll give us your uh, blessing on the way out the door, Father, that'd be great. Absolutely. Yeah. Bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may Almighty God send His Spirit, the Spirit of His Son, the, His own Spirit into your hearts so that you might truly see the wisdom of prudence and temperance and fortitude and truly attempt to develop that habit of nipping these things in the bud and, and of course, willing uh, through that freedom uh, to come into the fullness of his moral teaching and the fullness of his goodness and light. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. We shall see you next week, of course, and hopefully you'll be with yeah. us. Father Spitzer's books, great videos available through our religious catalog, of course, pictured on your screen next week. Satan, preparation for effective temptations continues. He's got a lot of good ideas there. They're bad ideas, but they work. Our bookmark for this week, and I get to talk to our great friend, Father Wade Manises, Catholic Essentials, a guide to understanding key church teachings. He's a great teacher. It's a fine interview. And we've got a new program, From the Heart, with Mother Angelica. Now this features some of the best of the holy hours mothers did years and years ago. If you love Mother Angelica, and don't we all, you got to check it out. Thursday, 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time for that program. And don't forget, Father Spitzer will be there. Family Celebration, October 1st, Phoenix Convention Center in Phoenix, Arizona. Go to EW10.com for more information to register for this free event. One-day event, you know what? We're going to have Father Mitch and Father Spitzer on the same stage. First time for us. You can't miss it. And we'll look for you next week right here when we once more re-enter Father Spitzer's universe. Thanks.